in seven years, we'll have the highest percentage of Americans non-native born since uh, the founding of the Republic. There are some who would like us to look the other way when dealing with families at the border and not enforce the law. If you're smuggling a child, then we're going to prosecute you. It's a law. And that child will be separated from you, probably, as required by law. And when you prosecute the parents for coming in illegally, which should happen, you have to take the children away. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says that his new Space Force will be separate but equal to the other military service branches. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. You know, here on Trumpcast, we talk all the time about what it means to have a president who reflexively lies about everything, who's personally corrupt, a president who lacks a basic understanding of the constitutional order, who doesn't accept the rule of law. But over the past week, it's become clear that we're facing something even worse, an administration descending into barbarism. How else can you describe a policy of taking thousands of children hostage separating them from their parents and holding them in cages for the sake of obtaining political leverage against the Democrats. You know, people get angry about comparisons to Nazi Germany, and no, Trump isn't Hitler and America is not Nazi Germany. But it's impossible to witness the intentional cultivation of racial hatred and the conscious infliction of cruelty against innocence and not think about Germany in the 1930s. No, children aren't being murdered, but they're being tortured intentionally harmed by those with a duty to protect them. A group of people is being strategically dehumanized. Trump tweeted today about illegal immigrants infesting our country. Before last week, I thought that Christian Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, had some common sense, if not some moral sense. She could have resigned if she had any humanity or decency left. Instead, she defends taking children hostage while at the same time denying the obvious that such a policy exists. The odious Stephen Miller may have sold Trump this policy, but Nielsen is its public face. By staying on and saying nothing, Trump appointees like Nielsen are validating an evil that's going to tarnish the United States for generations to come. They've forfeited any benefit of the doubt we might have given them previously. They've earned, by going along, our eternal contempt. On the show today, I'll talk to a federal public defender who represents asylum seekers charged with illegal entry. But first, joining me on the line is Jean Guerrero. She's an immigration reporter for KPBS in San Diego, and she was recently inside a detention facility where some boys separated from their parents at the border are being held. Jean, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. You were in a place called Casa San Diego. What's happening there? First of all, who's there and how do migrant children end up inside? Right. So this is Casa San Diego is one of the facilities that's run by Southwest Key, the nonprofit that operates 27 different youth migrant shelters in California, Arizona, and Texas. It's one of the smaller shelters. Um, it's all boys, 65 boys held in this particular shelter. So we got to take a look inside, which was very unusual because normally they want to be very 
very careful about protecting the identity of these children. Um, but at, at first, we, they, they just did a tour of the facility showing us different offices, the intake room where they, where they bring the boys and, and, and process them initially. And it, it's this very small room with, with a computer and one desk and, and a closet full of clothing and deodorant and razors and things like that. But we finally did get to see the bedrooms in which the boys stay three to four boys per room. Each one gets their own twin-sized bed. Each room has its own bathroom. Um, and near the end of the tour, we, we finally got to see the boys themselves. We saw them in a the classroom reading, reciting. Um, right when we entered the room, they, they started reciting good morning in Spanish and English and uh, Portuguese and, and some indigenous languages, which was kind of interesting because um, the whole tour had this really controlled sense about it. None of the journalists were able to bring in recording devices, not even audio uh, equipment. In fact, when I asked if I could bring audio recording equipment, and they said no, I, I, I followed up asking them why we couldn't bring in audio recording equipment, given the fact that I imagine that their primary concern is the privacy of the kids, and we could um, always keep that ident- those identities anonymous. And when I followed up with that question, they refused, the Department of Health and Human Services refused to answer my question and also threatened to call off the tour. Um, In fact, they they did call it off. Um, They called off the tour for me, and then I had to kind of backtrack and promise them that I wouldn't bring in any kind of equipment. Um, But yes, so as I was saying, we couldn't speak to any of the children. We couldn't interview them, even off the record. That wasn't allowed. So it was very controlled, very strict rules going in. And then even during the tour, for example, we were told that we had to hold our questions until the very end. Um, And this was a a group of reporters um, who were very curious and had questions along the way, and they just kept telling us to, to wait until the end, at which point we had a very short period um, to ask our questions all at once. And obviously, we didn't get any in-depth answers. Who was leading you around? Was it someone from HHS or someone who worked for this organization that runs Casa San Diego? So there, there was a HHS representative there, but the person who was leading the tour was a Southwest Key official um, who, who oversees the operations of, of Casa San Diego. And of course, um, my primary question was, how many of these kids have been separated from, from their parents. And so that, that was one question that they did answer. So 10% of the, of the 65 boys there had been separated from their parents. But so most of them were, not. So that's out of 65, you said the 65 boys there, that would be six or seven boys. Exactly. So it's, it's a small amount at this particular shelter, which is one of the smaller shelters. But I was still curious how this had changed I wanted to see how how much of an increase this represented um, and and how this had changed operations for the shelter, but they weren't very forthcoming with that information. They they weren't able to tell me how much of an increase it was. And um, what they wanted to focus on was this idea that they deal with traumatized children all the time. For years, they've been receiving children who are fleeing horrific gang violence at home and oftentimes have had to separate from their parents on their own or or because their parents have been killed in Central America, and so they had to make the trek alone. So even those who were not separated from their families by the United States government, in some cases, had to deal with some level of family separation, saying goodbye to loved ones at home. And so what the shelter directors wanted to focus on was 
this idea that they, they're fully equipped to deal with traumatized children. Uh, it sounds like the way you describe it, like this was a bit of a Potemkin tour. I mean, they, this sounds like they picked a facility which they think does pretty well, that isn't overcrowded, where most of the children weren't separated from their parents and where things have been running in an orderly way for, you know, years past before they had these few children. And they guided you around. They didn't let you talk to any of the kids. And then they didn't answer most of your questions. I mean, is that a fair description of how you experienced it? Right, exactly. Um, and then, and the other unusual thing, which I didn't even realize until after the fact, we didn't get to see any of the teenage boys. All of the boys that we got to see in, in the classrooms and outside playing soccer were were younger. I mean, I would estimate maybe under 11 or, or 12, but um, we didn't get to see any of the older older boys. And, and I don't I don't know why, why that is, but that shelter has, houses boys from age 6 to 17, and, and we didn't see any of the teenage boys. And presumably some of these boys have sisters. Do you know where the girls are going who would have been apprehended when the boys were apprehended? So Casa San Diego has another facility, which we didn't get to visit, um, that houses a, a few dozen girls. And several members of Congress came and, and had a tour of, of, of the same shelter that I visited. Um, and they mentioned that they that they hadn't, they had chosen not to visit the girls' facility because they had been told by Southwest Key that the girls' facility was much smaller than the boys' facility and therefore wouldn't comfortably comfortably fit a large group of of members of Congress. So that may be the reason that they didn't allow journalists to go look at at the facility where the girls are being kept. Are you and other journalists trying to get into other facilities? Are there ones in particular that you want to see the inside of? And in addition to journalists, who else is being let in? Is the Red Cross getting inside these facilities or other immigrant aid groups getting in? I mean, who's seeing what's really going on? on at, at these places, including some of the larger places where we've had reports of children being held in cages and and crying and, and conditions very different from the ones you saw. Right, right. So I don't, I don't know about the Red Cross, but like I said, the, the members of Congress, officials who are very concerned about this family separation issue are, are being allowed into some of the shelters. Um, I personally am very interested in, in, in going into the girls' facility that I mentioned, which all I know about it is... Um, that it's in Chula Vista, which is a, a neighborhood in, in the southern part of San Diego County. So I'm trying to get more information about the exact location and, and hoping to get permission to go inside, but it's very unlikely. Yeah. As, a, as an immigration reporter more generally, beyond what's going on at this facility, what's your sense of how the process is holding up for asylum seekers? I mean, Jeff Sessions says that they should show up at the point of entry, at the official point of entry, not try to cross in between and say, I'm here to seek asylum. What, what happens to, to people who actually follow the rules? Are they processed quickly? Do they are, are they able to get out on bail or to claim asylum as they should be able to? So what we're seeing actually is that when people present themselves at the ports of entry, the legal way, the official way, they, they are often told that the ports are at capacity, that they need to come back another day. Um, and, and this, for people who are in many cases desperate and, and fear for their lives and, and, and fear that they're being followed um, to, the, to the border, is is really really not an ideal scenario, and so what what you see is that sometimes these individuals end up crossing the border illegally and asking for asylum that way. Um, which I should mention, according to the Immigration and Nationality Act, 
people can claim asylum regardless of where they enter at the border. The law, the federal law says that even if you jump the fence, so long as you find a border patrol agent quickly and don't try to evade law enforcement, Mm. then you still qualify for asylum. But, um, when Homeland Security Secretary Kishan Nielsen said that they're not turning people, they're not separating families at the ports of entry, that's that's false. I've covered stories where people present themselves at the ports of entry, ask for asylum, and have their children taken away from them by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The agency says that the reason they do this, the reason they separate families, even when they come through legally through the ports, it's for the safety of the children. Again, they, they, they highlight the, the safety of the children. Um, they argue that in these cases where this happens, it's because the parents haven't provided sufficient evidence that they are the, the real parent of, of these children. But I, I, I've, I've covered cases. And, in, for example, there's, there's one father from El Salvador, Jose de Marfuentes, who came with his one-year-old baby. And he brought his the, the, he brought the baby's original birth certificate as well as his Salvadoran ID. He made copies of these documents before presenting himself at the port of entry because he'd been advised by a human rights group to do so. Turned these documents in to Customs and Border Protection, and was then transferred to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, where they said, "Where are the baby's documents?" And he said, "Well, they're with Customs and Border Protection." And they said he didn't have enough evidence that he was the father, and so they took his baby away and sent the baby to a, a shelter 1,500 miles away in Texas. My God. And and Jose, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go oh, and Jose, Jose remains in detention um, in San Diego in a, in a detention facility. Um, I actually followed up with Customs and Border Protection to ask them if they ever received these documents. Repeatedly, um, I, I followed up with them, and they and they declined to confirm or deny whether they had received these documents. They just kept pointing me back to ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and ICE kept pointing me back to CBP. And where's the baby now? The baby was able to be reunited with his mother. So the mom crossed the border with their other son, Andre, who's four years old, a few weeks later. um, they, They had to come across Mexico on the infamous train La Bestia together, but the baby, um, Mateo, the one-year-old, he started to seem very sick and dehydrated from this really exhausting weeks uh, of traveling. And so they decided that that they would split up because they didn't have enough money for bus tickets to get to the border together. So that's why Jose crossed first with the baby to try to get the baby to a safe place as soon as possible. And then when Olivia crossed a few weeks later. She she finally, after weeks of bureaucracy with the Office of Refugee Resettlement, was able to get her baby. But she told me it was like, it, she said, I felt like a stranger try, trying to adopt my own son. And 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 this has created stresses for her as well. Um, the fact that Jose remains in detention means that she has to take care of the babies on her own. But at, but as an asylum seeker, she's not allowed to work yet. So it's just, it's a very complicated situation. And does that, does that family, since you reported on this case, did they have a a good claim for asylum? Were they, where did, where did they come from? And were, were they victims of some kind of violence or persecution? Yes. So they came from El Salvador, where they had received death threats. A close friend of theirs, who was a police officer, had been killed by one of the gangs. And they had started receiving death threats um, because they couldn't pay the, the local gang 
the um, extortion. Basically, they were being extorted and they didn't have enough money to continue paying the gang. They had this shoe business in El Salvador that was doing pretty well, um, and that's kind of how they got the attention of the gangs. But after a while, they just couldn't, because once the second baby was born, it was just too much to continue paying these these gang fees that are, are required of of so many people in El Salvador, and so they decided to run away to to try to save their children's lives. Um, Jane, it sounds like you're doing a better job controlling your rage about this policy than, than I am. How do you? What's it like reporting on this day day after day? I mean, it must just be brutal seeing these just these heart rending stories. There's just such a denial of the reality happening by the Trump administration that you want to be, you just feel this tremendous sense of responsibility to to clarify for the public what's what's really going on and to put a human face to these stories. Um, You try to bring attention to the the stories of people who are truly, truly in a difficult situation and and have been separated from their kids, which is just creating um, more trauma for everyone involved. And this isn't something I'm, I'm just saying that the, the American Pediatrics Association, various uh, medical and psychiatric associations have come out and said that this policy of family separation can cause permanent psychological damage to, to children. Um, so yeah, as a journalist, you feel a real responsibility to, to show what's happening and, and to make sure you get it right. I've been speaking to Jean Guerrero. She's an immigration reporter at KPBS in San Diego. Jean, thanks for talking to me. Thanks so much. We'll be back with more Trumpcast in a moment. Eric, to get your name right, actually, I want to pronounce your name right. It's Eric Hanchu. It's Eric Hanchu. 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 Got it. I'm glad we asked. Yes. Joining me on the line is Eric Hanshu. He's an assistant federal public defender uh, for the Western District of Texas in El Paso. Eric, thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Can you just tell me where you are right now, what your what your office looks like? So our office, we're, we're in downtown El Paso. Uh, I'm sitting at my desk looking out the window at the uh, detention facility where all of our separated parents are being held right now. Is you're looking out the window at the detention facility? Yes, sir. I can look at it straight out my window. It's a uh, a large, fairly windowless, cement-looking building. <laughs> it's uh, you can look from our office at the courthouse and at the jail. So they're all they're all within basically the same block. Who's in that detention facility, as far as we know? Uh, a lot of moms and dads that have had their children taken uh, by immigration. And are these these are families that cross the border, attempted to cross the border near El Paso in, in western Texas along the Rio Grande and were apprehended there? Yes, that's correct. So these are these are families, uh usually parent and child, uh that were found and arrested along the US Mexico border here in the you know El Paso area I would call it. Uh and then they were uh after their arrest the parent was taken into custody for a federal criminal prosecution, which is what, what we represent and defend the parent for. Uh, and the child was taken into the custody of the uh, ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, uh, another executive branch. 
And that's part of the Department of Health and Human Services, whereas the Border Patrol, who you're dealing with on behalf of the parents, is DHS. Is that right? Yes, sir. So it, where the, the parents are across the street from you, the York clients, where are their children being sent? That's the, there's the question everybody would like to know the answer to, most particularly their parents and my clients. Uh, we don't know. Uh, right now, uh, the process is essentially to uh, start calling the ORR number, asking uh, the whereabouts of our client's child. Usually, we're told they're safe somewhere in the United States. Uh, ORR, for the large part, has refused to provide any significant details as to where specifically that location is. It's not so much later in this process that there's even any word about for example, a city uh, and or a particular home or facility. Uh, so right now, the answer to most of our clients uh, is we don't know because they won't tell us. And when they're trying to track their children, what do they have? Does the child Is the child given an identification number? Do they have a claim check? I mean, what is the, the connection to try to track them down? And, and there's, there's another huge problem, which is there appears to be no coherent policy by DHS, ORR, Department of Justice, whichever executive group you want to talk about, as to what it is they provide or not to uh, these parents. Uh, it runs the gamut from anecdotally, from you know being in the field down here representing these, these folks, that uh, some get absolutely nothing. Uh, others have been you know told to call numbers. Uh, others have been given some paperwork about the now immigration proceeding that their child uh, will be a participant in, uh, but but there's nothing, there is no clear, straight answer to this. And is your job as a public defender to help them find their children, or is it simply and only to defend them on the criminal charges related to crossing the border? Well, I mean, our, our, our appointment in this case is to represent our client in the federal criminal proceedings. But as a component of that includes issues, for example, such as bond. Uh, and, you know, that's a, a big issue that's arisen here in El Paso, which is, uh, you know, our office asking on behalf of our clients uh, for the, our, our clients, the parents of these children, to be able to be out on bond uh, so that they can actually have a realistic chance of trying to locate, uh, console, and hopefully reunite with their child. So we have to gather that information because that's something that we present to the court and the court's considerations of, of their criminal case, for example, the bond. So it, you know, it is, it is crossed over into uh, all proceedings. Have you been able to get bail for, for any of your clients, for many of your clients? Yeah, you know, we, we've we've had some success. Uh, there there are a number of different magistrate judges here in El Paso, uh, but one particular judge here, Judge Miguel Torres, uh, just a few weeks ago, started granting bonds in you know in each case as a case by case. But uh, for example, I had uh, three cases with separated parents that he granted a bond. Now the the unfortunate part is that the government, uh, meaning the U.S. Attorney's Office, immediately appealed and ask the higher level courts to uh, stay the bond. So at this point, our clients are um, in a waiting game, still in jail, uh, until the next level of courts decide uh, whether that Judge Torres' uh, decision was correct. What does the government want to happen in these cases? Presumably, these they intend for these people to be deported, I guess, together or separately with their children. But what's the is it, what what consequence are they looking for for the for the crime of border crossing? Oh, they don't they don't oppose uh, what most all these individuals get, which would be time served. So 
you know, they're they're not they're not necessarily going to court and asking for a bunch of time. It's that they are getting these criminal convictions and felony convictions at it. Conviction, deporting. So if they if they cross the border again, then I presume right. of- now now uh, instead of the exposure being you know for a person with no prior history and or criminal history, you know a range of punishment of zero to six months, meaning usually something like time served or probation. Uh, upon return, you know that escalates. You're talking multiples of three or four times that type of exposure for coming back here because now when you come back illegally as a previously deported felon, uh, the, the punishment range is jumped. They don't talk about months. It can reach years. Eric, before the zero tolerance policy, these weren't criminal suits necessarily. I mean, tr- crossing the border illegally was treated as a civil infraction, not a, not a criminal offense, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's correct to say that the, the federal criminal law of illegal reentry has existed for, for years. Um, that has existed. What is different now is that Prior to these new policies, individuals of which most of these separated parents fall into this group that had no prior criminal history in the United States and limited immigration contact, meaning they had come here once or twice in the past and had been processed through immigration proceedings, um, would not be what I call felonized. They would not be put into federal criminal prosecutions like they are now. Um, So, yes, you know, a year ago, these individuals. Would 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 they never would have met me um, because they would never have been in federal criminal prosecution proceedings. So tell me, how do you get assigned these cases, and then what what what's the process in each case? How do you meet the clients? What happens? Okay, so the the, the initial start of this whole process that gets the wheel going is uh, our clients. Well, before they're our client, they show up in federal criminal court, and uh, a judge makes a determination about appointments of counsel. They appoint, in a large number of cases, our office, the Office of Federal Public Defender, uh, these cases. Our office each day gets you know, these cases, takes them in, uh, and then assigns them out to the various, um, like myself, assistant federal public defenders. Uh, we're assigned the case, and then, then the, the personal part starts, which is, like I said earlier, you walk out the door and turn the corner and go meet uh, the human being. You go meet that person at the jail. And, uh, you know, this whole process, this whole new policy uh, has really changed that relationship. Uh, instead of going there and meeting, you know, a client whose questions are about, you know, what is what time am I looking at? What do the charges mean? Uh, you know, what's the, how's the judge in front of me? You know, the typical questions that, you know, someone being charged with a federal crime uh, would ask their lawyer. Uh, the conversation now is is it's tragic. It's a conversation of a parent explaining what happened to them out in the field uh, that their child was taken, and then the series of questions that any parent would ask: Where where is my where is my boy? Where is my girl? Uh, where are they taking them? When will I see them? Are they going to be okay? Are they going to send me back to my home country with them? Are they going to send me without them? Um, you know that that's the conversation now in the face to face with these with these parents. And you're you're speaking to them in Spanish, I assume. Yeah, so we go over and you know we we translate for anyone that's obviously not uh, you know an English speaker and explain all that to them. As a as a public defender, do you see these cases through from from arraignment to deportation or or final disposition, or or do you hand it over at some point to somebody else? Okay, so our our our, our as the federal criminal 
defense attorneys in this case and the public defender in particular, um, our appointment is to represent them in the criminal proceedings. So uh, we, you know, from the initial in the case when we're appointed till the ultimate disposition, which typically in federal criminal cases, at least here in El Paso, is usually a sentencing, the occasional, you know, not guilties or acquittals. But once that criminal case ends, that's the end of our appointment. And then, then the individual is when they've completed, if they've been sentenced, their federal sentence, once they complete that sentence is when they then uh, proceed to the immigration court or proceedings. And that's where discussions of, you know, removal, deportation, seeking relief and all that uh, begins. I mean, I can only imagine the way, as you describe it, the distress of these parents who, as you say, would have just one question, which is where are my children and what's happening to them? I mean, this must take a psychic toll on you and the other public defenders. I mean, what's it? How do you deal with this? Having people in this horrendous, inhuman situation and doing that all day, every day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, I'm a, I'm a father myself and, uh, you know, I've been used to this job where you go in and you deal with, you know, stressful situations and meeting, you know, a stranger and having to try to make a relationship as quickly as possible with them uh, and, and tell them tough things. But I've never in all the years of doing this uh, had to repeatedly tell a client who's a parent that I'm sorry that I can't believe that this country did this to you and your child. And two, most horrifically, I don't have any good concrete answers to what you care about, which is exactly where your child is and how and when will you be with them. And that's that's something that, you know, is is it's difficult. I mean, as any as any parent, any human being can imagine, uh, having to share that to somebody when that person rightfully believes, you know, the only person out there that they know at that point in time is whose job it is is to help them and educate them and give them legal advice. Um, and and we're left with answerless in many instances because of you know what immigration has done and what they've failed to do and how they've failed to explain to anyone uh, what exactly this process is, how, when it ends, how it ends, and, and all those other things that, that people want to know, that parents want to know. And what percentage of them would you say came planning to claim asylum or are, uh, are, are escaping political persecution or gang violence or, or some uh, classic asylum scenario? You know, that's, that's one of the tricky parts of putting a finger on that because, um, and this is where this is also very difficult, is that there, there's two distinct proceedings, right? You've got the criminal prosecution of which we are the defenders for these in the folks, and then there will be the immigration proceedings, which they will ultimately at some point um, end up in. It's at those proceedings, typically, that they are asserting and making those types of claims for what we would call relief, right? Like asylum, as you mentioned. Uh, they're intertwined in the sense of, you know, that's part of figuring out, you know, how they made their way here. Um, but how and if and when they make those claims and exactly how they make them becomes, a, you know, an issue with immigration. I mean, you can't make an asylum claim after you've been deported. Do they have a? Do they have the ability to assert that in this initial proceeding? So, it's the, if the if the process works as it should, when they arrive there um, at immigration after completing their their federal criminal case, normally meaning they completed their sentence, um, they're supposed to be provided an opportunity there to, uh, you know, make claims of credible fears and, and the such those types of things. Uh, you know, as a federal defender, you you meet. Every week, I meet new people. Uh, before this, you know, wasn't 
thankfully it wasn't parents with their kids taken. Um, but you meet people and lots of these cases along the border and federal court are, have always been about, you know, illegal immigration and the such. Um, and when you hear the stories of, of these individuals about why, where they came from, why they left, why they risked their liberty, why they risked their safety, um, you know, all, all of these considerations. What we, I think, in the United States have a hard time understanding is the real, the actual reality of the day-to-day life for, for so many of these individuals, which includes abject poverty. Um, and that just touches the tip. I mean, that doesn't get into violence, gangs, cartels, healthcare. I mean, these, these are all the issues. You know, we have a healthcare debate in our country uh, when we talk about what insurance covers and not. This is a healthcare debate about the fact that there's nothing. You, you are going to die from your maladies uh, unless you escape. So, you know, this is the reality that I think people miss uh, when they're saying, oh, you know, how could, how, you know, it's their fault because, you know, they bought their child here and they risk, you know, you hear this from some of the government lawyers arguing about these cases, about the fact that, you know, they made the choice and they brought their child here and, and the dangers and stuff. Well, you know, ask yourself what you would do as a parent um, if that was your reality where you lived. Eric, I can hear how passionate you are about defending these people beyond defending your clients. What what are you and I don't know the other public defenders in your office talking about? What can what can you do about it beyond just fighting these cases one by one? Well, I think as, as a collective, you know, we've taken an effort at the directive of our uh, you know, our fearless leader Maureen Franco. She's the defender for the Western District, and uh, we are participating in outreach. Um, you know, and interviews just like this uh, and reaching out to all, any and all immigration resources, civil rights groups uh, to, to get out the truth, which is what is happening to these folks in the field. Um, so that, you know, when, when people in the American public sphere, you know, hear the arguments, they also hear the facts, you know, that they hear about what is happening to, you know, these, these individuals, these human beings. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're trying to make sure that everybody, you know, understands that this is the fight, this is the consequence of, you know, the actions that are being taken. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, with that education, people can make the decisions that are more informed. Eric, uh, I want to speak for my listeners here. I know they'd want to thank you for the work you're doing defending people who have no other defense. We, we appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you all putting uh, putting this information out for people to listen to. Thank you very much for all that. Thanks again. I hope we'll speak to you again, and good luck. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. And that's our show for today. If you're still with us, you must be getting something out of it. We'd really appreciate if you'd go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. It helps others discover the show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.